The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was a man with a choice of what race to be, or should I say, to be identified as. And, as he was born in 1858, this was an era where a decision like that mattered a great deal. His parents were free-born blacks, but the races had mixed. One of his grandfathers was a white slaveholder, and in fact, he was, by his reckoning, seven-eighths white. By appearance, he could have passed, and even by laws at the time, he would legally have been considered white, even in many of the southern states. But he chose not to do so. He followed his parents in identifying as black, and he married a black woman, and he worked to improve race relations all his life, including work for the NAACP in its early years. His name was Charles Chestnut, and although his parents had owned a grocery store in Ohio, he himself wanted to be a writer. And so he was, one of the best of his era, and taking as his theme the divisions of race in post-Civil War America. The divisions, that is, not just of white versus black, but the gradations of race within those categories. The one-drop rule came about during his lifetime, and that emphasizes that no matter what Charles Chestnut said about himself, others would have something to say about him, too. Seven-eighths white, one-eighth black, light-skinned, dark-skinned, European ancestry, African ancestry, slave, not slave, former slave, free-born, southerner, northerner, border state, the cauldron of identity was full of lots of swirling ingredients. He didn't try to ignore that reality. He dipped into it with clear eyes and ladled it into the bowls of his short stories and novels. We will have one of those short stories, probably his most famous, The Wife of His Youth, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. Charles Chestnut, a very compelling writer. He was one of the best. He lived for 74 years, born in Cleveland and died there too, lived in New York and other places during his life. He was a lawyer, among other things, hoping for change via the law and disappointed by the Supreme Court of that early 20th century again and again as it put in place segregation and other discriminatory laws. He taught for a while, struggled to earn a living, and then started to get some traction as a writer. But we need to get to this story of his, which was written in 1898. It was published in the Atlantic Monthly and later collected in the short story collection, The Conjure Woman. Carl Van Vechten paid Charles Chestnut a tribute in one of his novels when a character who's aspiring to be a writer considers Chestnut and his accomplishments, quote, He lifted the wife of his youth from its place on the table and opened its pages for the hundredth time. How much he admired the cool deliberation of its style, the sense of form, but more than all the civilized mind of this man who had surveyed the problems of his race from an Olympian height 
and had turned them into living and artistic drama. Nothing seemed to have escaped his attention, from the lowly life of the worker on the southern plantation to the snobbery of the near-whites of the north. Chestnut had surveyed the entire field, calmly setting down what he saw, what he thought, and felt about it. End quote. We are going to hear that in action soon, but first... Let's do some literary news. Let's take a quick break and then come back with an ancient pot with a bit of Virgil on it and what that says about Rome and perhaps us. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We travel to Spain, to Andalusia, to the Guadalquivir Valley. The Phoenicians were here once upon a time, and then the Romans, settling in the 2nd century BC and turning this place into an important river port, with a walled city and shipyards and naval squadrons to follow. By the 1st century AD, ships were sailing from here to Rome, full of minerals and salt and fish. Business was booming, as was the population, which meant much throwing of much pottery. Terracotta, the clay vessels that Romans cranked out the way we crank out plastic and glass bottles. For us, it's it's sports drinks and fizzy water. For them, it was olive oil to be hauled all over the Roman Empire. The vessels served their purpose and were discarded, and they piled up hills of them. You can still visit those hills today, crunching the terracotta shards underfoot. They're still tacky with oil, some of them, and you can even see the fingerprints of the people who made the pots, most likely slaves who were dedicated to this purpose, to keep the engines of commerce running at full speed. And so, it came as something of a surprise when it was discovered that there were words written on one of these shards, words etched when the pot was drying, written in a neat but fast cursive hand, words in Latin. This is sometimes 
seen. It's not completely unknown, but this one stood out for a few different reasons. For one, it was lines of Virgil's poetry written from memory with some misspellings and some words out of place, but Virgil nonetheless. Virgil, the leading poet of his day. So let me pause here and say that all the reasons you might think that this had been done are not really the case. The lines were written on the inside of the jar, not at some future pot owner's request, not to say anything about the contents of what was inside, not for any apparent functional purpose, but by a worker who was drying out the clay, saw that he could write on it when it was still wet before it hardened, and he grabbed a stylus and made his mark. His mark, his graffito, some private, almost like scratch paper. And what did he write? He conjured up some lines of verse from memory and jotted it into the pot. The lines are from a passage about the advent of farming, where Virgil is talking about the hard work of farming, the toil that goes into it, and the abundance of the harvest that arises from it. Earth delivering ears of wheat, thanks to this invention of agriculture and the backbreaking effort of those who practice it. Maybe a slave reflecting on his own efforts, making pots, or maybe admiring or reflecting upon or appreciating or remembering the life of a farmer. Who knows? We know only one thing. This guy wrote it, and he wrote it for no apparent reason other than poetry was running through his mind, and it ran out of his mind and and through his arm and into his hand and onto this pot. We don't know if he liked his job or if he liked farmers or if he had been a farmer or anything about him. We know only one thing, well, a few things, I guess, but here's a couple. We know we, we know he had fairly neat handwriting, and we know he appreciated poetry. So where does that leave us? Leaves us something like those cave paintings. So we're in the same place that those cave paintings put us, I think, tantalizingly close to humans who lived thousands of years ago, anonymous humans. We have no idea what they thought or what dreams they had, or how they loved. It's tempting to think that they're remote, ancient, maybe primitive, not really like us. And then we catch a glimpse of someone drawing an animal or a tree or a human hand just because, or jotting down lines of poetry just because, and we think, that could be me. I could be there seeing, working, thinking, just like this person. Poetry runs through my mind sometimes, and I might jot it down on a scrap of paper, or I might quote it to a friend, or cut and paste it into an email, or a social media post. We'll have a nice example of Tennyson and his poetry, and Shakespeare too, coming up in our story. And in this case, over there in Spain, it was Virgil. In my case, it's often T.S. Eliot, or I guess I should say J. Alfred Prufrock, t- talking about measuring out his life in coffee spoons. For some reason, that comes up in my head all the time. Maybe I, if I jot it down, that will survive. Probably it won't. But if it does, and some lucky sucker stumbles across it in a few thousand years, that person will say, huh, 
This poor schmuck from back in the 21st century. Here I'd have thought he'd be grunting his way through life. Belching oil or gnawing on plastic or whatever they did back then in that fossil fuel era. But hey, he must have had at least a bit of time and mental energy to do something a little more elevated. Look at this. That Joe Schmo is quoting some poetry. Maybe that's all his meager life would allow him to do. Maybe that was his escape. Maybe that was his one bright spot. The few seconds of his day when his mind could roam free and he could think about poetry. And he happened to write it down. Maybe this guy wasn't so bad after all. Still dumb, of course, as they all must have been. No idea how gravity worked or... Uh, unable to teleport, still driving vehicles with wheels that touch the ground, somehow eking out an existence in the midst of all those wars they had back then, but maybe closer to me than I thought. He had some room for poetry, and maybe that's how I would have been back then, too. Hmm. We'll take our last break, and then we'll have room for a short story. Charles Chestnut after this. back. Thank you for indulging those two breaks a little quicker than usual to give you a second break like that, but it's because we want to read the whole story all at once. I didn't want to break that off in the middle. We're going to read the whole story with a few pauses for commentary along the way. And I'm basically reading this along with you. It's been a long time since I've read this. I don't remember much about it. So my comments are going to be contemporaneous. Here we go. The wife of his youth by Charles Chestnut. 1. Mr. Ryder was going to give a ball. There were several reasons why this was an opportune time for such an event. Mr. Ryder might aptly be called the Dean of the Blue Veins. The original Blue Veins were a little society of colored persons organized in a certain northern city shortly after the war. Its purpose was to establish and maintain correct social standards among a people whose social condition presented almost unlimited room for improvement. By accident, combined perhaps with some natural affinity, the society consisted of individuals who were, generally speaking, more white than black. Some envious outsider made the suggestion that no one was eligible for membership who was not white enough to show blue veins. The suggestion was readily adopted by those who were not of the favored few, and since that time the society, though possessing a longer and more pretentious name, had been known far and wide as the Blue Vein Society, and its members as the Blue Veins. The Blue Veins did not allow that any such requirement existed for admission to their circle, but, on the contrary, declared that character and culture were the only things considered, and that if most of their members were light-colored, it was because such persons, as a rule, had had better opportunities to qualify themselves for membership. 
Opinions differed, too, as to the usefulness of the society. There were those who had been known to assail it violently, as a glaring example of the very prejudice from which the colored race had suffered most. And later, when such critics had succeeded in getting on the inside, they had been heard to maintain with zeal and earnestness that the society was a lifeboat, an anchor, a bulwark, and a shield, a pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night, to guide their people through the social wilderness. Another alleged prerequisite for Blue Vein membership was that of free birth. And while there was really no such requirement, it is doubtless true that very few of the members would have been unable to meet it if there had been. If there were one or two of the older members who had come up from the South and from slavery, their history presented enough romantic circumstances to rob their servile origin of its grosser aspects. Okay, let's pause there for a moment. Here we are. I hope you're following this. This isn't as, as thorny as of prose as, say, our Henry James short stories with all those circumlocutions, circumlocutory prose, I was going to say, if that's a word, roundabout, throat-clearing prose, that Jamesian style. This isn't that, but it's still a bit old-fashioned, and I'm not always sure how easy it is for you to follow by ear. If I have to read it a couple of times on the page to see where I am, I'm expecting that maybe... You might need to hear it a couple of times, too, but I don't know when that happens for every single listener, so I'm just going to pause here and there to try to clarify. Not because the prose is difficult, but because I have some thoughts. So here are my thoughts. The blue veins. Immediately, we know we're in a Charles Chestnut story because race is one of his primary concerns. But look at where we are with race. This isn't a white savior preaching to the choir. This is someone who's looking at a social phenomenon, accepting it for what it is, describing it plainly, and then jumping to the human psychology of it, because these are humans, not saints. And we have some unsaint-like positions right here in the second or third paragraph. Some human positions. Not because we want to dismiss or denigrate, but because we want to dramatize to convey the actual human condition, and to find the areas of drama. The blue veins, as I expect you caught, are light-skinned blacks. Already we're in a subtle world that's closer to real life than most stories, which have black and white dichotomies. Barack Obama, as we know, had a white mother and a black father. He identified as black. He was mostly treated as black, especially when he was an adult. But there are decisions. There were decisions involved on his part and on the part of others too, both black and white, as people decide how to treat him. I'm talking about race now, not politics. People decide how to treat people like Barack Obama, as we decide how to treat everyone, for that matter. They decided that before he became famous, they were making decisions about that as well as after. He's black. He identifies as such. That's not the end of the story. Accept him, reject him, exhibit affinity with him, or exhibit a prejudice against him. Tribal instincts kick in. Who's in? Who's out? What's my take on this person? What group? Where do I think that he or she belongs? All those instincts kick in, and they've been kicking in for a long time. Here, 
They date back more than a hundred years to the world where slavery was recent memory and coming out of slavery was vivid and omnipresent. For individuals, a reality like the Cold War was for me as a kid and the age of terrorism was for probably everyone listening to this. Everyone after 9-11, the age that we've been living in, inescapable reality. It's not theoretical. It's not something to be wished or waved away. It's all there to be decided. Here's a person. How do they fit? How do I fit, for that matter? The Blue Veins Club is light-skinned blacks, and this guy, Mr. Ryder, is the head of it. And Chestnut tells us right from the start, look at what this club is doing. First, they say, of course, that race has nothing to do with it. It's just, it's based on character and culture. And everyone on the outside says, oh, for God's sake, stop pretending. We're going to call it the Blue Veins Club. You're not letting anyone in who's, who's not light enough to have the Blue Veins showing. We see this all the time with race, don't we? Where we say, no, 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 this isn't about race. It's just about drawing maps based on democratic elections. And then, you know, you scratch the surface and the districts that have the most insane squiggly lines you've ever seen. It turns out that those districts track incredibly closely to racial demographics. And no doubt you have your own examples of racially driven policies coming out of either side of the aisle, no matter where you are politically. You see policies based on race, and one common denominator is that the proponents of those policies say that they're not about race. That's point number one for Charles Chestnut. Still relevant today. This story is very relevant in a lot of ways. No doubt he was accurate in his time, too. This stuff is based on human nature after all. Point number two is that the people on the outside of the club, the Blue Veins Club, say, well, this is horrendous. This is basically racist. How can we rail against prejudice against white people mistreating black people based on the color of their skin? And a club like this is prejudiced by favoring people based on skin color. You're adopting the very thing we're trying to eliminate or expose. And those same people who make that claim against the Blue Veins Club, the sharpest critics of the Blue Veins Club, suddenly change their minds once they're accepted into the club. Now they view the club as essential, wonderful, uh, a lifeboat, and so on. Again, this is very human. There's that famous line, I don't want to join any club that would have me as a member, said Groucho Marx. But the humor in that, in his saying that, is that it's against human nature. It's self-deprecating and it's surprising because that's not what people normally think. The more common attitude is, screw you and your stupid club, I hate you all. Oh, wait, you like me? I'm in? Okay, then. This is the best club ever. Did I say screw you? I meant to say screw all those outsiders trying to get in. We see this all the time, don't we? Isn't this immigrants who arrive and pretty soon the immigrants themselves or the next generation say, you know what? You know what our problem is? Immigration. 
let's close things off. This is this is not just limited to we saw this with uh when we looked at our our southern whites, not just southern whites. When we looked at southern uh southern white writers talking about middle class whites all over the country, north and south, who were anxious about poor whites. Remember that? With our guest, and we talked about Huck Finn and his father. And we talked about basically, you see this with all kinds of groups where people will want to rise up and then pull up the ladder after them. I made it up here, whether it's because of race or because of wealth or because of job, opportunity, everything. And then I made it up here. And now I don't want anyone else to make it up here either. So Chestnut has identified that too. The last point, the third point, is a fascinating one for those of us coming 100 years later or more. The blue veins just happen to deny a lot of people born slaves. They deny it. They claim that that's not their policy, but somehow they don't seem to have let many people born slaves in. Somehow that has happened. This is a club in the North and a few old-timers have made it up from the South in slavery, and they've let a couple in. But there are enough romantic aspects of their journey that that they're no longer possessed of what the narrator here calls the grosser aspects of being having been a slave. So once again, this feels extremely real to me. White people, black people, everyone. This is such a human instinct. They would no doubt say, if asked, that slavery is an essential, horrible fact that must be addressed, the perniciousness of the institution, even after it's gone, has long and lasting and undesirable after effects. They would say all the right things and think all the right things, and then when it comes right down to it, there's been a bit of a distaste against the actual genuine victims of it. We blame victims for reminding us of problems or for for being not who we want them to be. The blue veins are trying to get past stereotypes and former slaves, according to this narrative, exhibit features that are all too stereotypical. So we're about three paragraphs in and I'm fascinated. What is this blue veins club going to do? Will this hypocrisy slash humanity crack at some point? We will see. Back to the story where we were discussing whether there was an eligibility requirement of not having been born a slave. While there were no such tests of eligibility, it is true that the Blue Veins had their notions on these subjects and that not all of them were equally liberal in regard to the things they collectively disclaimed. Mr. Ryder was one of the most conservative. Though he had not been among the founders of the society, but had come in some years later, his genius for social leadership was such that he had speedily become its recognized advisor and head, the custodian of its standards and the preserver of its traditions. He shaped its social policy, was active in providing for its entertainment, and when the interest fell off, as it sometimes did, he fanned the embers until they burst again into a cheerful flame. 
Okay, let's pause there briefly. Our Mr. Ryder is sort of the instigator of the club, for better or worse. He's a charismatic leader and keeps things going when enthusiasm is sagging. He's the keeper of the standards. The club needs him, and he has views. Are they maybe the views that everyone secretly wants to have? They want the club to have even as they claim otherwise? Perhaps. We know they're definitely his views. He's made them clear. He's more conservative than others on these subjects of maybe keeping the membership to to a, have a bit, of, a bit of a threshold for people they allow in. Okay, back to the story. There were still other reasons for his popularity. While he was not as white as some of the blue veins, his appearance was such as to confer distinction upon them. His features were of a refined type. His hair was almost straight he was always neatly dressed, his manners were irreproachable, and his morals above suspicion. He had come to Groveland a young man, and, obtaining employment in the office of a railroad company as messenger, had in time worked himself up to the position of stationary clerk, having charge of the distribution of the office supplies for the whole company. Although the lack of early training had hindered the orderly development of a naturally fine mind, it had not prevented him from doing a great deal of reading or from forming decidedly literary tastes. Poetry was his passion. He could repeat whole pages of the great English poets, and if his pronunciation was sometimes faulty, his eye, his voice, his gestures would respond to the changing sentiment with a precision that revealed a poetic soul and disarmed criticism. He was economical and had saved money. He owned and occupied a very comfortable house on a respectable street. His residence was handsomely furnished, containing, among other things, a good library, especially rich in poetry, a piano, and some choice engravings. He generally shared his house with some young couple who looked after his wants and were company for him, for Mr. Ryder was a single man. In the early days of his connection with the Blue Veins, he had been regarded as quite a catch, and young ladies and their mothers had maneuvered with much ingenuity to capture him. Not, however, until Mrs. Molly Dixon visited Groveland had any woman ever made him wish to change his condition to that of a married man. Okay, we'll pause there. Molly Dixon, we're going to get to her. The paragraph ends with a tease. He wanted to marry Molly Dixon, but first let me say where we are in the story. It's not hard to hear the echoes of white people and what they've intended to be a compliment for years. Oh, this guy. This guy is articulate. That's the word, isn't it? Clean, articulate. Most people, I think, know now, here in 2023, that that's a word to avoid because it's laced with stereotypes, you're saying this, this person doesn't sound black. He or she sounds white. How comforting to my ear. I'll vote for you or hire you or accept you as my neighbor. And here's Chestnut putting his finger on this a hundred years ago, but noting that the blue veins, these light-skinned blacks, are doing the same thing. They like Mr. Ryder because his hair is almost straight, because he's doing all these respectable things. He has a piano. He has a nice house. He likes great English poets. He recites their poetry. 
He saves money. He's respectable, respectable, respectable. All these things that they are aspiring to as well. So here comes Mrs. Dixon. Mrs. Dixon had come to Groveland from Washington in the spring, and before the summer was over, she had won Mr. Ryder's heart. She possessed many attractive qualities. She was much younger than he. In fact, he was old enough to have been her father, though no one knew exactly how old he was. She was whiter than he and better educated. She had moved in the best-colored society of the country at Washington and had taught in the schools of that city. Such a superior person had been eagerly welcomed to the Blue Vein Society and had taken a leading part in its activities. Mr. Ryder had at first been attracted by her charms of person, for she was very good-looking and not over twenty-five, then by her refined manners and the vivacity of her wit. Her husband had been a government clerk and at his death had left a considerable life insurance. She was visiting friends in Groveland, and, finding the town and the people to her liking, had prolonged her stay indefinitely. She had not seemed displeased at Mr. Ryder's affections, but on the contrary had given him every proper encouragement. Indeed, a younger and less cautious man would long since have spoken. But he had made up his mind, and had only to determine the time when he would ask her to be his wife." He decided to give a ball in her honor, and at some time during the evening of the ball, to offer her his heart and hand. He had no special fears about the outcome, but with a little touch of romance, he wanted the surroundings to be in harmony with his own feelings when he should have received the answer he expected. Mr. Ryder resolved that this ball should mark an epoch in the social history of Groveland. He knew, of course, no one could know better, the entertainments that had taken place in past years and what must be done to surpass them. His ball must be worthy of the lady in whose honor it was to be given and must, by the quality of its guests, set an example for the future. He had observed of late a growing liberality, almost a laxity in social matters, even among members of his own set, and had several times been forced to meet in a social way persons whose complexions and callings in life were hardly up to the standard which he considered proper for the society to maintain. He had a theory of his own. I have no race prejudice, he would say, but we people of mixed blood are ground between the upper and the nether millstone. Our fate lies between absorption by the white race and extinction in the black. The one doesn't want us yet, but may take us in time. The other would welcome us, but it would be for us a backward step. With malice towards none, with charity for all, we must do the best we can for ourselves and those who are to follow us. Self-preservation is the first law of nature." His ball would serve by its exclusiveness to counteract leveling tendencies, and his marriage with Mrs. Dixon would help to further the upward process of absorption he had been wishing and waiting for. That's the end of the first section. Wow, Chestnut isn't holding back, is he? It's all on the table. It's out there. Mr. Dixon's view. He says, I have no race prejudice. And the next word is but. Right? We know how that goes. His view is pretty, 
pretty full of prejudice. It doesn't really inoculate him that he's black himself. He's been infected by prejudice nevertheless. I'll marry a whiter woman than me. We'll have a great ball to celebrate it. And here we go. On the way, onward and upward, getting whiter. Make sure that the people who come to this ball are of the right complexion. And here we are. What do we say about this group of us? We're not accepted by white folks, but hopefully, fingers crossed, someday we will be. Someday, I and and my fellow light and getting lighter black-skinned folks will reach that promised land. That's the promised land he wants. Acceptance by white people. Absorption into their society. And hey, he recognizes black people would be glad to have us back in their company. They would welcome us. But that's a step back for us. Hmm. Chestnut has put a society under the microscope here, and this is what he's found. White people at the top, black people at the bottom, and light-skinned blacks in the blue veins, or at least some of them, like the head of the blue veins, Mr. Ryder, who want to make it up to the top. They're in the middle. They want to go up. But we can see the problem with this, can't we? As much as we might want to say, well, this is only natural in a world where white people are holding all the levers of power and dominating the culture and exhibiting refinement and so on. It's only natural that someone like a Mr. Ryder might want to join them. He wants to join them via the very via and including the very thing that makes their dominance so morally compromised. Racial prejudice. He doesn't just say, well, white people like poetry and culture. I like poetry and culture. We have something in common. And that's why we, we have this commonality, these shared interests. He says, they like poetry. I like poetry. Our skin color divides us. But hey, Maybe I can make my skin to, to be more like theirs. And I want to, maybe I can escape the skin color that's viewed by the white people as undesirable. He hasn't just said, let's aspire to the nice home and the respectable job, but be who we are. He's saying, let's do all that and be, let's be less black too, because to be more black or to be among blacker people is a step backwards. And the black people at the bottom who aren't in the light-skinned group who are saying, hey, we're happy to take you. We're not going to judge. Well, they're, they're at the bottom, but is that really where they should morally? That's the, they're on the top. That's the correct position. The meekest have the most defensible attitude. They're the only ones here standing on the moral high ground of tolerance and inclusion. It's astonishing to read the story from a hundred, hundred and 25 years ago, and to see how little things have changed in a lot of ways, really. Chestnut was a visionary, but it seems like all he had to do was remove a kind of filter from his eyes and see things around him clearly for what they were. So, Mr. Ryder is going to make his, have his ball to celebrate his, his proposal of marriage to his whiter bride and the successful transition upward of a light-skinned black who will become a bit more acceptable to a racist white society. We'll celebrate that too at the same time. None of none of these people think of themselves as prejudice, of course, this being the North and all, but Chestnut is quite clear that race is the primary motivator of these blue veins. So now let's go back to the story. Let's visit the ball. Two. 
The ball was to take place on Friday night. The house had been put in order, the carpets covered with canvas, the halls and stairs decorated with palms and potted plants, and in the afternoon Mr. Ryder sat on his front porch, which the shade of a vine running up over a wire netting made a cool and pleasant lounging place. He expected to respond to the toast, The Ladies at the Supper, and from a volume of Tennyson, his favorite poet, was fortifying himself with apt quotations. The volume was open at A Dream of Fair Women. <laughs> oh, man, Chestnut. <laughs> Chestnut is found. <laughs> Chestnut is, is having fun here, I think. The, vo the volume was open at A Dream of Fair Women. His eyes fell on these lines, and he read them aloud to judge better of their effect. At length I saw a lady within call, stiller than chiseled marble, standing there, a daughter of the gods, divinely tall, and most divinely fair. He marked the verse, and turning the page, read the stanza beginning, O sweet pale Margaret, O rare pale Margaret. He weighed the passage a moment, and decided that it would not do. Mrs. Dixon was the palest lady he expected at the ball, and she was of a rather ruddy complexion and of lively disposition and buxom build. So he ran over the leaves until his eye rested on the description of Queen Guinevere. She seemed a part of joyous spring, a gown of grass-green silk she wore, buckled with golden clasps before, a light-green tuft of plumes she bore, closed in a golden ring. She looked so lovely as she swayed the rain with dainty fingertips. A man had given all other bliss and all his worldly worth for this, to waste his whole heart in one kiss upon her perfect lips. As Mr. Ryder murmured these words audibly with an appreciative thrill, he heard the latch of his gate click and a light footfall sounding on the steps. He turned his head and saw a woman standing before his door. She was a little woman, not five feet tall, and proportioned to her height. Although she stood erect and looked around her with very bright and restless eyes, she seemed quite old, for her face was crossed and recrossed with a hundred wrinkles, and around the edges of her bonnet could be seen protruding here and there a tuft of short gray wool. She wore a blue calico gown of ancient cut, a little red shawl fastened around her shoulders with an old-fashioned brass brooch, and a large bonnet profusely ornamented with faded red and yellow artificial flowers. And she was very black, so black that her toothless gums, revealed when she opened her mouth to speak, were not red, but blue. She looked like a bit of the old plantation life, summoned up from the past by the wave of a magician's wand, as the poet's fancy had called into being the gracious shapes of which Mr. Ryder had just been reading. He rose from his chair and came over to where she stood. Good afternoon, madam, he said. Good evening, sir, she answered, ducking suddenly with a quaint curtsy. Let me pause here for a moment. Chestnut is giving us the goods, isn't he? First, Mr. Ryder's trying to find the right poetry for the occasion. He lands on Tennyson, of all people, his favorite poet, and considers some lines about the fair pale maiden, which ultimately does not quite fit. Might be a little insulting to be praising this 
this skinny white chick in the poems who's not exactly reminiscent of his bride and then or the other women who are going to be there and then as this uh, guy this aspiring to escape his dark black skin guy the echoes of slavery guy is this guy who's trying to escape all that as he gets ready a black woman straight out of central casting a bit of the old plantation life come to life appears at his door could almost be his conscience the party's tamped down coming to him as a vision we'll see if that's who she is and i'm going to speak in a bit of dialect to give you the flavor this is how chestnut is written and i'll try to do it without sounding like some old racist disney character chestnut clearly wants to draw the distinction here she's coming from the old world the south the plantation which Mr. Ryder, articulate Mr. Ryder, articulate in quotation marks with all the the irony we can give it, the world that he's been trying to escape. He's beyond it. She's not. And that's clear in the way she talks, and I think it's important, so I'll try to read it that way. But keep in mind, this is what we're doing here. So back to the story and the five-foot-tall black-skinned woman. Her voice was shrill and piping, but softened somewhat by age. Is this year where Mr. Ryder lives, sir? She asked, looking around her doubtfully and glancing into the open windows through which some of the preparations for the evening were visible. Yes, he replied with an air of kindly patronage, unconsciously flattered by her manner. I am Mr. Ryder. Did you want to see me? Yes, sir, if I ain't disturbing you of too much. Not at all. Have a seat over here behind the vine where it is cool. What can I do for you? Excuse me, sir, she continued when she had sat down on the edge of a chair. Excuse me, sir, I was looking for my husband. I heard you was a big man and had lived here a long time, and I allowed you wouldn't mind if I came around and asked you if you ever heard of a merlotter man by the name of Sam Taylor choiring round into churches amongst the people for his wife, Liza Jane. Mr. Ryder seemed to think for a moment. There used to be many such cases right after the war, he said, but it has been so long that I have forgotten them. There are very few now, but tell me your story, and it may refresh my memory. She sat back further in her chair so as to be more comfortable and folded her withered hands in her lap. My name's Eliza. She began, Liza Jane. When I was young, I used to belong to Mess Bob Smith down in old Missouri. I was born down there. When I was a gal, I was married to a man named Jim. But Jim died, and after that, I married a merlotter man named Sam Taylor. Sam was freeborn, but his mammy and daddy died, and the white folks prenticed him to my master for to work for him till he was growed up. Sam worked in the field, and I was the cook. One day, May Ann, old Mrs. Maid, came rushing out to the kitchen and says she, Liza Jane, old mass gone sell your Sam down the river. Go away from here, says I. My husband's free. Don't make no difference. I heard old mass tell old miss he was going to take your Sam way with him tomorrow, for he needed money, and he knowed what he could get for a thousand dollars for Sam, and no questions asked. When Sam come home from the field that night, I told him about old Mass going to steal him. And Sam run away. His time was most up, and he swore 
that when he was 21, he would come back and to help me run away or else save up the money to buy my freedom. And I know he'd have done it, for he thought a heap of me, Sam did, but when he come back, he didn't find me, for I wasn't there. Old Mars had heard that I warned Sam, so he had me whipped and sold down the river. Then the war broke out, and when it was over, the colored folks was scattered. I went back to the old home, but Sam wasn't there, and I could I could not farm nothing about him. But I knowed he'd been there and looked for me and it hadn't found me and had gone away to hunt for me. I's been looking for him ever since, she added simply as though twenty-five years were but a couple of weeks. And I knows he's been looking for me, for he sought a heap or store by me, Sam did, and I know he's been hurting for me all these years, lessen he's been sick or something, so he couldn't work or or out in his head so he couldn't remember his promise. I went back down to River, for I allowed he'd gone down there looking for me. I's been to New Orleans and Atlanta and Charleston and Richmond, and when I been all over the South, I come to the North, for I knows I'll find him some of these days, she added softly, or he'll find me, and then we'll both be as happy in freedom as we was in the old days before the war. A smile stole over her withered countenance as she paused a moment, and her bright eyes softened into a faraway look. This was the substance of the old woman's story. She had wandered a little here and there. Mr. Ryder was looking at her curiously when she finished. "'How have you lived all these years?' he asked. "'Cookin', sir. I's a good cook. Does you know anybody what needs a good cook, sir?' I was stopping with a colored family around the corner yonder till I can get a place. Do you really expect to find your husband? He may be dead long ago. She shook her head emphatically. Oh, no, he ain't dead. The signs and the tokens tells me. I dreamt three nights running only this last week that I found him. He may have married another woman. Your slave marriage would not have prevented him, for you never lived with him after the war, and without that your marriage doesn't count. Wouldn't make no difference with Sam. He wouldn't marry no other woman till he found out about me. I knows it, she added. Something's been telling me all these years that I's going to find Sam before I dies. Perhaps he's outgrown you and climbed up in the world where he wouldn't care to have you find him. No, indeed, sir, she replied. Sam ain't that kind of man. He was good to me, Sam was, but he wasn't much good to nobody else, for he was one of the triflingest hands on the plantation. I specs to have to support him when I find him, for he never would work less than he had to. But then he was free, and he didn't get no pay for his work, and I don't blame him much. Maybe he's done better since he run away, but I ain't expecting much. You may have passed him on the street a hundred times during the twenty-five years and not have known him. Time works great changes. Let me pause here. Mr. Ryder, I've been on hard I've been hard on him, as I think Chestnut was. He's clearly in a morally compromised position, exhibiting some prejudice. But in this section he's been kind hearted. He's a big man in town. And this woman, Liza, has sought him out because she's looking for her husband, Sam. And in my reading so far, Mr. Ryder has set aside whatever prejudice or 
distaste that he might have for the lies of the world, and he seems genuinely interested in helping her. She's been wandering around the country, south and north, for 25 years, looking for the husband she had before the war disrupted all that. The society, the stability of it, made everyone free, of course, but it also scattered people to the winds and broke apart relationships and marriages. Ryder remembers right after the war, there were lots of people trying to find one another. They'd come to the church, ask around, and here we are 25 years later, and this woman is still in pursuit of her Sam because this, and remember, Ryder's on the verge of marriage himself. This is love. That's why she's here. It's admirable no matter who is expressing it, no matter the skin color. Will Ryder be able to help her? Will he choose to help her? Will he learn something about himself in doing so? He's so far been a little dubious, but maybe that's been to help her see that her quest might be fruitless. Maybe she should move on, not have her hopes up. Those are the stakes now. Will Ryder help and will he change? Back to the story. You may have passed him on the street a hundred times during the 25 years and not have known him. Time works great changes. She smiled incredulously. I'd know him amongst a hundred men, for there was no other man, marlotta man, like my man Sam, and I couldn't be mistook. I's toted his picture around with me twenty-five years. May I see it? asked Mr. Ryder. It might help me to remember whether I have seen the original. As she drew a small parcel from her bosom, he saw that it was fastened to a string that went around her neck. Removing several wrappers, she brought to light an old-fashioned daguerreotype in a black case. He looked long and intently at the portrait. It was faded with time, but the features were still distinct, and it was easy to see what manner of man it had represented. He closed the case, and with a slow movement, handed it back to her. "'I don't know of any man in town who goes by that name,' he said, nor have I heard of anyone making such inquiries. But if you will leave me your address, I will give the matter some attention, and if I find out anything, I will let you know. She gave him the number of a house in the neighborhood and went away after thanking him warmly. He wrote the address on the fly leaf of the volume of Tennyson, and when she had gone, rose to his feet and stood looking after her curiously. As she walked down the street with mincing step, he saw several persons whom she passed turn and look back at her with a smile of kindly amusement. When she had turned the corner, he went upstairs to his bedroom and stood for a long time before the mirror of his dressing case, gazing thoughtfully at the reflection of his own face. That's the end of section two. The final section is ahead. Oh boy, he's gazing at his own face. Do you think he saw something in that man in the daguerreotype? Liza calls him a mulatto. We're going back 25 years. That couldn't be his own father. Do you think? We don't think that, do we? I don't think the math works. Narratively, that might be an interesting development, but something else is happening here. I think we will see. Three. At eight o'clock, the ballroom was a blaze of light and the guests had begun to assemble, for there was a literary program and some routine business of the society to be gone through with before the dancing. A black servant in evening dress waited at the door and directed the guests to the dressing rooms. The occasion was long memorable among the colored people of the city, 
not alone for the dress and display, but for the high average of intelligence and culture that distinguished the gathering as a whole. There were a number of school teachers, several young doctors, three or four lawyers, some professional singers, an editor, a lieutenant in the United States Army spending his furlough in the city, and others in various polite callings. These were colored, though most of them would not have attracted even a casual glance because of any marked difference from white people. Most of the ladies were in evening costume, and dress coats and dancing pumps were the rule among the men. A band of string music, stationed in an alcove behind a row of palms, played popular airs while the guests were gathering. The dancing began at half-past nine. At eleven o'clock, supper was served. Mr. Ryder had left the ballroom some little time before the intermission, but reappeared at the supper table. The spread was worthy of the occasion, and the guests did full justice to it. When the coffee had been served, the toastmaster, Mr. Solomon Sadler, rapped for order. He made a brief introductory speech, complimenting host and guests, and then presented in their order the toasts of the evening. They were responded to with a very fair display of after-dinner wit. The last toast, said the toastmaster when he reached the end of the list, is one which must appeal to us all. There is no one of us of the sterner sex who is not at some time dependent upon woman, in infancy for protection, in manhood for companionship, in old age for care and comforting. Our good host has been trying to live alone, but the fair faces I see around me tonight prove that he too is largely dependent upon the gentler sex for most that makes life worth living, the society and love of friends, and rumor is at fault if he does not soon yield entire subjection to one of them. Mr. Ryder will now respond to the toast, The Ladies. There was a pensive look in Mr. Ryder's eyes as he took the floor, and adjusted his eyeglasses. He began by speaking of woman as the gift of heaven to man, and after some general observations on the relations of the sexes, he said, But perhaps the quality which most distinguishes woman is her fidelity and devotion to those she loves. History is full of examples, but has recorded none more striking than one which only today came under my notice." He then related, simply but effectively, the story told by his visitor of the afternoon. He gave it in the same soft dialect, which came readily to his lips, while the company listened attentively and sympathetically, for the story had awakened a responsive thrill in many hearts. There were some present who had seen and others who had heard their fathers and grandfathers tell the wrongs and sufferings of this past generation, and all of them still felt, in their darker moments, the shadow hanging over them. Mr. Ryder went on. Such devotion and confidence are rare even among women. There are many who would have searched a year, some who would have waited five years, a few who might have hoped ten years. But for twenty-five years, this woman has retained her affection for and her faith in a man she has not seen or heard of in all that time. She came to me today in the hope that I might be able to help her find this long-lost husband. And when she was gone, I gave my fancy rein and imagined a case I will put to you. 
Suppose that this husband, soon after his escape, had learned that his wife had been sold away, and that such inquiries as he could make brought no information of her whereabouts. Suppose that he was young, and she much older than he, that he was light, and she was black, that their marriage was a slave marriage, and legally binding only if they chose to make it so after the war." Suppose, too, that he made his way to the north, as some of us have done, and there, where he had larger opportunities, had improved them, and had in the course of all these years grown to be as different from the ignorant boy who ran away from fear of slavery as the day is from the night. Suppose, even, that he had qualified himself, by industry, by thrift, and by study, to win the friendship and be considered worthy the society of such people as these I see around me tonight, grazing my board and filling my heart with gladness, for I am old enough to remember the day when such a gathering would not have been possible in this land. Suppose, too, that as the years went by, this man's memory of the past grew more and more indistinct, until at last it was rarely— except in his dreams, that any image of this bygone period rose before his mind. And then suppose that accident should bring to his knowledge the fact that the wife of his youth, the wife he had left behind him, not one who had walked by his side and kept pace with him in his upward struggle, but one upon whom advancing years and a laborious life had set their mark, was alive and seeking him, but that he was absolutely safe from recognition or discovery unless he chose to reveal himself. My friends, what would the man do? I will presume that he was one who loved honor and tried to deal justly with all men. I will even carry the case further and suppose that perhaps he had set his heart upon another whom he had hoped to call his own. What would he do, or rather, what ought he to do? in such a crisis of a lifetime. It seemed to me that he might hesitate, and I imagined that I was an old friend, a near friend, and that he had come to me for advice, and I argued the case with him. I tried to discuss it impartially. After we had looked upon the matter from every point of view, I said to him, in words that we all know, This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, Thou canst not then be false to any man. Then, finally, I put the question to him, Shall you acknowledge her? And now, ladies and gentlemen, friends and companions, I ask you, what should he have done? Okay, I hate to pause there, <laughs> cliffhanger, but can you believe it? I did not think Chestnut would go here, saying that this was his father or a friend. That would be strong enough, that coincidence, but saying it's him, Mr. Ryder, is incredible. And there it is in the story's title, of course, The Wife of His Youth. Ryder is speaking in a hypothetical, but we now recognize that this is his dilemma. He was that man married to that woman. Look at his response to her. When she asks him, I don't know, he says, I don't know of any man in town who goes by that name, nor have I heard of anyone making such inquiries. Well, that's not a lie. He's not going by that name, and he hasn't made such inquiries. He's the one who has forgotten her, has moved on, has elevated himself toward that promised land of white acceptance, has transformed himself so much that she can't recognize him now. She who, who loved him and has been searching for him for 25 years. 
and he turns to Shakespeare, God bless him, into Hamlet, because this is an existential crisis. Hamlet, the play, is appropriate, and Polonius's advice is one that has rung through the ages. Don't deceive yourself. To thine own self be true. But the question is, what is writer's true self? Is it the freeborn Sam who loved Liza once upon a time, or the the one, the person he's been for the past several decades trying to lift himself above those who haven't made it as far as him. And he's not just deciding this by himself in a vacuum, he's putting it to the blue veins, the one group who might be expected to know and share and feel his dilemma here because they're all at different stages of this process too, including his wife, his new bride, his bride-to-be, I should say, who might also be expected to have some interest in the matter. This is not very hypothetical for her. This is very real. Okay, back to the story. There was something in Mr. Ryder's voice that stirred the hearts of those who sat around him. It suggested more than mere sympathy with an imaginary situation. It seemed rather in the nature of a personal appeal. It was observed, too, that his look rested more especially upon Mrs. Dixon, with a mingled expression of renunciation and inquiry. She had listened, with parted lips and streaming eyes. She was the first to speak. He should have acknowledged her. Yes, they all echoed, he should have acknowledged her. My friends and companions, responded Mr. Ryder, I thank you one and all. It is the answer I expected, for I knew your hearts. He turned and walked toward the closed door of an adjoining room while every eye followed him in wondering curiosity. He came back in a moment, leading by the hand his visitor of the afternoon, who stood startled and trembling at the sudden plunge into this scene of brilliant gaiety. She was neatly dressed in gray, and wore the white cap of an elderly woman. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, this is the woman, and I am the man whose story I have told you. Permit me to introduce to you the wife of my youth. That's it. That's the end of the story. My goodness, what a moment! It's an O. Henry ending. I suppose you could say it's not exactly subtle. It kind of hits you over the head. It's not a Joycean epiphany, but an extreme plot-driven result. But it's wonderful nevertheless. That visitor, startled and trembling, facing her new world, the new world of finding her husband, Sam, she's been searching for, but the new world also of the Blue Veins, who will now have their leader suddenly transformed into someone with, hopefully, much more compassion than before, whose empathy has been awakened, and all the blue veins really are viewed for their hearts being essentially in the right place in this version of this story. The disease of prejudice might have infected them, but the patient has not died on the table. And the white blood cells are fighting back, and I wish, I wish we didn't call them white blood cells suddenly, I realize, because... <laughs> Maybe isn't the best place to include the word white. But if I said leukocytes, you'd all think I'm insane. The immune system, how about that? That has risen up and is fighting back. Their hearts are there, as Ryder says he knew they would be. They remember these stories from their parents and grandparents. They know the pain, and they know the 
the noble suffering, the nobility of a woman like Liza who's been searching for her husband out of love for 25 years. I want to see the sequel of this story, to see Liza accepted and to see the life that comes afterwards. But leaving leaving our story on this trembling moment will have to do, and maybe it's better because Mrs. Ryder, the, the former and presumably, well, I should, what did I say? Mrs. Ryder? Mrs. Dixon. Ms. Dixon, the bride. She was the bride-to-be who was the first to speak to say, go, darling, be free, be yourself. Acknowledge this lifelong love who's been pursuing you through the ages. This poor elderly woman, that's your destiny. Don't reject it for me. Maybe it's better to see that the story ends here with this dignified moment because is this really going to work? Is this really going to work? Is this really... is is Can Mr. Ryder really become Sam again? He says, permit me to introduce to you the wife of my youth. He doesn't say to introduce to you my wife, right? It's been pointed out that that this is a moment, but is Ryder really going to follow through? Maybe we stop here where the blue veins became, are the, it's the best they'll ever be. They, they might not have a finer moment than this. Their, the work is not finished. They will probably not all be magically transformed by this moment, and society won't be either. They'll all be back to their old ways by tomorrow, I suspect, if not sooner than that, knowing how humans are. But that that's kind of to watch a parade and say, here comes the rain, you suckers. For now, let's just revel in the moment. The trembling Liza, what a beautiful moment, a beautiful image of this elderly woman. She's about to have her question answered. Her Sam has come through. He's alive. He's here. He's the pot of gold at the end of her rainbow. Not a monochromatic rainbow in black and white, but a technicolor rainbow with all colors in the spectrum, from Roy to G to Biv, and all shades in between. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this look at Charles Chestnut and the story, The Wife of His Youth. We're going to travel to New Orleans pretty soon, next week, I think, unless we decide to travel to Dublin first. Both of those cities are on our planned agenda. Maybe we'll flip a coin. What else? How about Henry James this August? There's a really good short story of his that might make for some fine August reading, but we will have guests too. They're all lined up and we'll have more reading. Mike Palindrome's going to be here for a discussion of F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night, if you want to put that one in your beach bag. Spend a little time with Dick and Nicole Diver this summer and Rosemary Hoyt and lots of other good things to read as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.